speaking in chapter 6 of John, 49 to 58. better than what Moses gave. They made the suggestion that Jesus ought to be another Moses and keep giving the manna. But he said, look at the difference. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and what happened to them? They died. Didn't sustain their life. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I mean, even Moses died, but this bread Jesus gives, which is himself, you don't die. It, it provides life. We're back to that theme we've been following through John. He is the true life giver, and life is not just by him. It is in him. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If you eat me, you eat this bread, you'll live forever. Now, all of that's a little odd to us. You know, eating Jesus... Uh, I mean, he, he, and they thought so. You know, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You know, it's kind of disgusting. Really, it's kind of like not what they wanted. They wanted some real bread. You know, I think that's more their point in their mind than just the disgustingness of this, but they use this. Jesus said, he makes bad matters worse. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and so forth and so on. Uh, so Jesus uh, makes it kind of gross. You know, not just eat him, but eat his flesh and drink his blood. So what's that say? Sounds like we come again. <laughs> what does that sound like? That's that what you're saying, Josh? Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, whether or not this has something to do with the Lord's Supper. Quest? Um, uh, it just kind of brings something to my mind from Leviticus. You know, God told them not to, uh, you know, eat the blood and that sort of thing. Yes. And Leviticus 17, 11 and verse, uh, verse 11 and verse 14 are kind of the reasons why. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And he's given it upon or giving it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, and it's the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. And I think that that's very interesting, that this is the very reason why he wants us to partake of his blood. And, 
Yeah, he gives us life. Yeah, exactly. He only wants us to have the life that he gives and not from anything else. So what does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood, JC? The parallel that I draw is that we are to take in his word, take in what he says, take in Christ, the glory of God himself. And then, as you read later in 1 John, to know that, or to claim that you abide in him, you walk as he walked. You do what Christ does. You take in Christ so that Christ is you <coughs> and you guys are one. So you can be one with Christ and, I guess, walk together, <coughs> be one. I think that's a good statement. I think that's the idea. We take Christ into ourselves. You, you eat something, it becomes a part of who you are. We feed upon Christ, and, and he lives in us. He becomes a part of who we are. Now, you might look at a couple things. Look at 47, and look at 50. You know, he who believes has eternal life, or you eat the bread and you don't die. What does it mean to eat Jesus? It means to believe in him. Or look at 35. Uh, he who, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. You know, verse 40. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And then look at verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? It means to believe in him. Both of those things give you eternal life. They're not two different things. You know, eating his flesh and drinking his blood is to believe in him, is to take him into you and make him a part of you. It's just a strong way to say that. It's a memorable way to say that. You know, just envisioning the cannibalistic, uh, you know, imagery makes you really think about you need to make him a part of you. That You need to trust him and believe in him like that. Now, what about this question? Is this, to some extent, a reference to the Lord's Supper? Probably get a divided response if we took a show of hands. Mason? If it's a reference to the Lord's Supper, then he's making a reference that literally no one who was listening to him would understand. Because nobody knew anything about the Lord's Supper yet. Good point. Tim? Well, he's not Matthew 4. I mean, he's made allusions to Really, no kind of illusion of what's to come. So I don't think that's outside of what he would do. Yeah, I don't know. Jaden? Uh, I think maybe the Lord's Supper has elements of this uh, putting Jesus and the fellowship you have with him into yourself. And so they're probably talking about the same things, but I don't think this is really trying to do the, the culmination of this is not the Lord's Supper, the culmination of this is belief in Jesus. And Lord Supper is a memorial feast that incorporates some of these kinds of elements. Okay. Ben? This all starts in verse 27 to 28 where he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which perishes your mind. And he goes on this one that he's saying the same exact thing in verse 27 as he's saying in verse 53 and 54. Just phrased differently. And the thing is, he gives them a rebuke about their attitude. And instead of them saying, You know what, we have the wrong focus. They keep pestering him and go on about these things that they think are important. And so he escalates the, the conflict there. to just saying, you know what, you guys are not worth my power. He, he forced them to see it more. But 
And really, it would have stopped in verse 27, I think, if they hadn't had the wrong attitude. And so, we see in verse 27, clearly the idea there is not the Lord's Supper, even though conceptually there are some, some ideas that it shares with it. Okay. I think there's some better points, perhaps, that can be made than what we've made so far. David? Well, God only records institutional Lord's Supper, I don't think, doesn't he? He does not. So, for the readers, I mean, it's not like to tie back into anything later on in the book. True. That may not be as strong since the readers would have known about the Lord's Supper from other sources, but probably worth thinking about. Michael? Um, that was the case in why we taking the Lord's Supper in the week. If, if one, if eating uh, the Lord's Supper will be good enough forever, I don't know how to put all together. But we will not hunger anymore. It's just a different. It's not about Okay, Andrew? I think it's saying in like 53, 54, and 55, like, I think it's saying that you be part of him. That's your heart is him. Like, no, I'm not going to say like, you be, make him part, make him your life. Sure. I agree. Rick? Uh, I think, I think it's not really eating his flesh. I think it's being uh, in the same, in the same mind frame as Jesus. Yes, I agree. Logan? When Jesus says he's the bread of life, what he means by that is what we've been talking about, is obeying him and listening to his voice. Because in him we can have eternal life. Part of how we have that eternal life in him is through his sacrifice, and that's what we remember by the Lord's Supper. So although he may not be specifically pointing to the Lord's Supper here, the Lord's Supper cannot be erased from all connection to it. Okay. Seth? I was going to say something similarly, that this is may not be alluding to the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper could definitely be alluding to this, that partaking of the Lord's Supper reminds us of, of our connection with Christ and what he gives for us. Okay, so driven all of that, let me make some points that haven't been made that I think are worth thinking about. One is, he never uses these terms for the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, it's not flesh and blood. It's body and blood. So this is at least one of a kind if it's the Lord's Supper. Furthermore, he's speaking this primarily to, at best, lukewarm disciples. Will they have eternal life? Will they have eternal life if they just partake of the Lord's Supper? You know, clearly that's not what he's saying. He's not trying to say to these guys, well, you guys, you really got to predict the Lord's Supper, guys. You know, if you predict the Lord's Supper, then you'll have life. No, they need to believe in him. They need to make him a part of themselves. And furthermore, where in the Bible would you think that eating the Lord's Supper guarantees eternal life? You know, the, now, the reality of the, what the Lord's Supper points to, Jesus sacrificed for us, I'll agree, gives us eternal life. But eating... The body and blood does not give us eternal life. We ought to do it. God commands it, but that in itself is not equivalent to eating the bread of life, which is Jesus, believing in him and taking him into ourselves. So in my judgment, this is not an allusion to the Lord's Supper. And it's a misapplication to say that. Now, I know some really good Bible students who think that it is. So I'm not... You know, I may, be, I may have just missed something there, but those points are convincing to me that that's really not what he was thinking about. 
He's, he's speaking in this graphic, vivid way to say, you guys are thinking about physical bread, but I'm the real bread you need to think about. You need to eat and drink meat. And it just makes you really see your need to take him into yourself. JP? So do you feel it's wrong to use this in thoughts with the Lord's Supper since that's not really what he's trying to express here? Well, I mean, <laughs> I guess I won't answer that question. I mean, it depends on how you use it, I suppose. We, we shouldn't be surprised that a lot of similar uh, concepts and symbolism are used in different ways. Uh, so it's not that this relates to the Lord's Supper, but this and the Lord's Supper both relate to Jesus. Exactly, sir. Yes. Now, I think the biggest thing we're looking at here is context. It's, I mean, it's not that the words aren't similar. It's like... Like you said, I mean, things are going to sound the same in the Bible, but what are they talking about before? What are they talking about after? Amen. Right, right, yeah. In this context, when we sidetrack to the Lord's Supper, we really missed his point altogether, in my judgment. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Then. I think it just makes it stronger. I think he's really trying to, you know, not let them invade this. You know, you really need to take me into yourself. There, there are chances flesh to eat. And he said, I'll tell you what, you better eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. That's just how much we depend on him for our life. So I think he's intentionally almost grossing them out. That's one of the many metaphors which has been used throughout the Bible. Certainly. You know, the Bible is metaphorical in so many, you know, and that's why so many people didn't understand. They didn't speak metaphorically. They're like, what's he talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, whatever. I don't know that they did, but, but we do a lot. We just have a hard time when the Bible does. I mean, somebody would say, you know, I devoured that book. <laughs> Most of us don't think we eat, we eat paper, you know. But, but we use that sort of thing. Well, I'm going to chew on that for a while. You know, or whatever. We use all that kind of stuff. It was hard to digest. <laughs> hard to swallow. Hard to to swallow. Or what do you use all that kind of stuff? Yes. So do you think, uh, like, I mean, we've been talking about how, like, the Jews have been kind of stubborn in understanding anything he said. And there's not been a whole lot of people that's understood, you know, exactly what he's getting at, you know, the real reason. So you think that, that, they are really like creeped out here. Like they're are really thinking that he's talking about here. You know, come take a bite of my arm. Like, are are they not completely creeped out? About it? Like, I think they are upset because he's not giving them food. That's what I. Think. Yes. But it seems like it's a typical statement of Jesus to say something that I mean, if you really think about it. Obviously, he's not saying you know, come eat my you know, come eat my flesh. And so he's given them a, enough to say, you know, to, to kind of see, you know, to say, what is he really talking about? I mean, they kind of, you know, make themselves figure out. That's what he's always done. Whatever he's I agree. So, uh, they don't like it very well, though. You know, he says, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. You know, I am really what food and drink is. I satisfy you. You know, I'm what you what will, will, will provide your spiritual nourishment. He who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. 
You know, in the same way that I depend on the Father, and I live because of the Father, so you live because of me. There's a kind of an analogy uh, in in that. And uh, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, the true bread that gives life. You guys are thinking about the wrong thing. If you really want life, I'm the source, not your food. Anything else on all that? Roger. Yeah, a question was asked yesterday about how in John 5, it says that Jesus had life within himself, something like that. But here it says that the Father gives him life. Yeah, well, it's what we said last, yesterday. When, when we say that Jesus has life in himself, we don't mean by that life independently of the Father. The two of them unite. You know, there's never a time when Jesus has something that he hides from the Father. He's just got it to himself. That's, it's not, that's not the concept. But, but the Son and the Father have inherent life. We don't. But they do. And so, don't do, we shouldn't separate them in this. I think, I think the problem, if, if we think, well, he has life in himself, the father doesn't, he, he does. Or, you know, he's got it on his own, he just managed to, you know, buy it for himself. No, it's that the two of them, as one, have life in themselves. Mason. And so the point of verse 57, then, is Jesus said, if you believe in me, if you nature, you share that with us, you share yes. that lot. Yes, yes. The connection uh, back to chapter 5 when it says, um, I cannot be anything independent, I don't act independently of the Father. It's kind of sound like here. I mean, that's the way, exactly the way he is with God, that's the way we are. And we can do nothing independent of Jesus. Or... Exactly. All right, let's see the reaction 59 to 71. These things he said in the synagogue, as he thought in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. You can listen to it. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled with him, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. For there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. He was saying, for this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. <coughs> As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you as twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is not what they wanted to hear. This was offensive to them. Their hearts were hard. They did not like this. And Jesus says, this causes you to grumble. Why do you see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? They were fleshly minded. 
They needed to see the priority of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that gives them life. They're thinking about food. Jesus is offering them something so much bigger and greater. And they do not want it. That's not what they are seeking because they are God's people. They haven't been given to him from God. And so they withdraw. They, they forsook him. They left him. Jesus lost a huge multitude in one day. And Jesus turns to the twelve. You're going to go away too? Everybody else is. And what did Peter say? Nobody else to go to. You have the words of eternal life. It's only real life in you. I don't care how many people are or are not following Jesus. There's no other place to turn for life than him. And Jesus, and, and Peter said this like, we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. That was perhaps uh, overly optimistic, well-meaning, but overstated. Jesus said, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Uh, he met Judas, the one who was going to betray him. You find me a place, you can't hardly do it, in the Gospels, where Judas is mentioned, and it isn't appended to his name, the one who would betray him. That's how Judas comes to be known almost every time he's mentioned. Um, so, but, but for the others, they did believe uh, in, in Jesus and, and were willing to stick with him. Now, I want you to think about some applications of this. I want you to think about this in connection with Jesus, the twelve, and the multitude. Could Jesus have kept this multitude? Well, what would he have to do? Fed he didn't. He doesn't seem to care about how many followers he has. He cares about keeping the ones the Father gives. We've got to get to that point. I think sooner or later he would have lost them because sooner or later he's got to reveal this truth to them. If he's going to be, he's going to honor his Father's will. Yes. Well, yeah, exactly. That's his point. If he's going to really reveal the Father to him, they don't have a taste for that. You know, I mean, there are ways of keeping these people, but you compromise who you are when you do that. You, you, you have to avoid the truth. You have to water it down. You have to divert it. You know, and, and so from Jesus' perspective, he wants to faithfully reveal the Father and receive the ones God gave him and keep those. And that's it. Now think about it from the perspective of the twelve. I'll tell you, this must have been a trial for them. It doesn't say so, but can you imagine the situation they went through one day? They are the closest advisors of the most popular man in the land, and the next day they're the last to bail from a sinking ship? Wow! You went from being, you know, just, wow, at the top to the bottom in one sermon. What do you do when it's not popular to follow Jesus? What do you do when the church has terrible problems and it goes from, you know, 100 to 20 in the course of a month or two? <laughs> well, you know, can't stick with that. Do you follow Jesus or does the fact that it's become suddenly unpopular turn you away, Rick? Is it scary? His last one or is it? Where he's from. He's a man of carry out. So, you know, if you're one of the twelve, this is a test for you. 
What if you're the multitude? You know, they are faced with this test that they failed because they wanted a God that would give them what they wanted. When he didn't do what they wanted him to do, they left him. Are we like that? Are we like that multitude? You know, okay, if, if he does what I want, if he'll give me what pleases me, I'm okay. If not, goodbye. So I think there's lessons to be learned from each of those. You may want to extend on those some, but, but I think those are good things to, to just meditate on in connection with this whole idea. Comments and questions? Right. I don't think that it's well stayed because they totally understood everything that Jesus had just said. It's probably just as difficult for them as it was for the others. But they believed in Jesus enough to stay through that difficulty. Well, exactly. It's not easy, but he has the words of eternal life. Who else does? You stay with Jesus because of who he is. What? Are you saying that Jews never really believed? I don't know if I can answer that. Yes? Do you think turning people away from Jesus was a hard thing for him to do? Because he always seems like he goes to Christ before he does something that we're trying for Yes. You know, I'm not sure if I know the answer to that. I'm not sure that Jesus ever really thought he had these people. He knew what was in men. And so I'm not sure this was as big a challenge to him as it was to everybody else. It would have been to us. But I think from his perspective, he's doing what the Father wants, and he's not losing anything. Yeah, that's the thing. Did he lose anybody that day? No. No, really. He just, you know, didn't really have them. Michael. Now, I was thinking kind of along the lines of what it says in Jesus that he wishes that none of them perish, and yet here's thousands that, that just want food. And he knows he's going to die for those people, too. And what it says in Jesus that he would be willing to at least give them a chance of observing the miracle and, and having a chance to believe him, even though he knew. Good point. Yes, great. Um, I'm a little confused on how verse 62 ties in with what he's talking about here. He says, what then, if you can see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Uh, how does that tie into the rest of the time? I am not positive about that. I think he may be saying there will be things harder to accept than this, like me going back to the Father. But there's various trains of thought. Uh, look. Based on what uh, Peter says, did part of the 12, or at least Peter, actually get what Jesus was saying whenever he made that statement? And was, was he still partly misunderstanding what Jesus was saying? Well, I mean, what they responded was fine. The, you're talking about the 12? No, I think what they responded was fine. Ben? The application you're making from the perspective of the 12 is one that we really need to take to heart. The people who are here today need to take that and apply that. Because we, we, we think about evangelism and, and realizing, you know, sometimes people aren't going to hear the truth and not accept that. And, and we deal with that when we talk to our friends and, and people we work with, people we go to school with. But, 
most of us are, as younger people have not really been as involved in the church and in leading the church especially. But there is a disease in the mind of so many people who are leading the churches that if people are leaving the church, something's wrong, something's got to be fixed. Not to go to Mark, but to something else that John wrote in 1 John, he said, that, um, there are those who went out from us, but they weren't really of us, because if they had been of us, they would not have gone out. And sometimes, you know, people will get offended uh, in, over unnecessary things, and people are, are leaving, and that shouldn't happen, but sometimes people leave, and the people who are standing for the truth just say, this is a good thing, this is a pruning of the dead branches, this is plucking the eye out of the body, so we may not stumble. It's cleaning out the leaven, and, and so many people who are in churches don't have an idea to think, if somebody's leaving, it's got to be bad. So here, here in this situation, as you mentioned, if the church went from 100 to 20 in a month or two, the solution would be fire to free. It's not what they could do in this situation, and yet that's so often what we, what we think about. Yeah, uh, it's a very good point. I mean, is all growth good? What about cancer? Is all shrinkage bad? No. I mean, Jesus almost, um, you know, he's sort of the catalyst for what happens here. I mean, he's the one who preached the sermon. He's the one who said, I'm not getting you anymore. You know, Jesus knew what was going to, happen, going to happen, but is there not some advantage to weeding out the false disciples at this point? So, maybe we ever once in a while ought to ask, well, the church is growing, what are we doing wrong? Now, that doesn't mean that growth is all bad. There were times when churches grew, and properly so. So that if, 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 and if the growth is not coming because we're not teaching, well, we ought to be teaching regardless. Um, and there are times when shrinkage is, diatrophy is kicking people out of the church that belong to the Lord. So, you know, it's not, that's really not the criteria. Basically. It's a little bit like uh, the story of Gideon in that sense. God is trying to accomplish something, and he's trying to teach the people involved a very specific lesson about where victory and, and real growth lies, which is not in numbers. It's not in the earthly measurements that we use to determine success or failure, but it's in the growth of the Word of God and of faith in God in the hearts of the people that are faithful to Him. And that's the difference in this, in chapter 6, between the disciples that remained and the people that left. The people that left weren't attracted to the message. They were attracted to the food. The disciples that remained, they ate the food, but they saw more something more important, something more valuable in the message, and that's why they stayed. God's weeding out the people in this case that are going to take the glory away from Him in the ultimate victory. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Roger. Can you expand a little more on verse 63? <laughs> well... I mean, they're thinking physical, bread, food, you know, stomach. But, but that's not what really matters. I think that's what Jesus is trying to get them to say. What they need is the spirit. That's what gives life. And, and the words that he speaks, they are the spirit and the life. You know, so, so he's trying to get them to be spiritually minded. You know, to, to seek his word, not seek the food. That's what I see. Another thing is that my dad is a preacher um, from Church of Christ of St. James, and there's a church similar to God. And my dad um, and my brother Grady decided to go there, 
and maybe after the service encouraged people, he told, my dad told the gospel to the people who lead the church in the assembly of God, and they're not willing, like, people, they did not like what they were hearing, like Jesus was explaining here, they did not like what he was being said, but if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, do not give up. Good point. John? Um, some of y'all might have run into this, but I think there's a, uh, I guess, a rationalization that people are using. Um, or you ask somebody why they did something, and they're like, well, the Holy Spirit made me do it. Or the Holy Spirit led me to this. Or, you know, it put it in my heart and told me this, and, you know, you do it. And there's no really biblical reason for why they're doing it. They just feel good about it. And, you know, when you're talking about those things, I find 63 to be very helpful. You know, the words are the Spirit. They're, they are what gives life, you know. Okay. Going back to the question that came over here about verse 62, I think that there's a broader application there. Um, uh, starting in verse 61, it says, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see some man sending to where he was before? When Jesus ascended from Acts 2, we know that he ascended into power. Um, that his kingdom had been established, and he goes back to heaven and reigns. And then in, then in verse 63, he talks about how the flesh is no help at all. It is the spirit who gives life. I think there that, that the broader application to them is, you were disappointed when I didn't give you food. Can you imagine when your earthly kingdom doesn't happen? That when it is spiritual, when the Son of Man ascends into heaven, when when there is no longer any hope of your earthly kingdom being established, that can you imagine the disappointment of that compared to you and the bread today? It would be an interesting angle on it. Other thoughts? Mason? It's interesting to contrast the crowd here in chapter 6 with the woman at the well in chapter 4. In chapter 4, uh, Jesus, the woman says, well, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, yeah, that's me. That's all he says. She jumps up, leaves her water pot, runs back into the village, and brings more people out. Here in this discourse, Jesus makes the claim, essentially, to be the Son of God. You know, to be the Messiah. And the people go, yeah, that's nice, but aren't you going to feed us? You know, <laughs> They weren't willing to leave their water pot to do anything. They were clinging on to that for dear life because they thought that's where the source of life was. Just it's, And I think sometimes we get wrapped up in that. We get wrapped up in the physical bl blessings and benefits that come from service to God. And we focus on those so much that we forget to actually <coughs> serve God. Good point. Yeah. Maybe it's a good practice to put ourselves in the shoes of the people of Jesus' day and, and always challenge, would we have believed them? You know, and it's, I wrestle with that a lot, and I, I really don't know that I could say, but it's a good way of challenging your own integrity, because that's what it would depend on, is, is your integrity and your love for God. And, you know, you know, it's just good points. Very good. Jake? Uh, I just go... Uh, what Tim said, I feel like that's a big question because we're expecting these people to connect the dots. If Jesus does these things, you need to follow him and obey him. And we have to, we have to make the same connection in their own life. Okay, yeah, we believe in the resurrection. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. But we say we believe that, but our life doesn't actually reflect that at all. We don't really believe that. And so we, we have to uh, be making the same connections and have the same faith that we're expecting of these people and are critical of these people tonight. Good point. 
A lot of times, I think we kind of judge people in the Bible days, like it was like the Israelites. How we think? I mean, sometimes we just think that these people were so stupid for not seeing things and for not following God, and not not you know, because like you know, they had the miracles, and 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 we think that our time is so much worse than their time because they actually got to see it. And but I think I think that is a good question, and and you know we've got to be careful to to judge them and to say that you know these people are stupid for not seeing it and uh, sometimes we don't see the obvious things that are in front of us good point Simon's response uh, in verse 68 to use this question to whom shall we go or where should we go is that true of us if if we're faced with a problem would we say that to who else can we go so what else can we go? You have the only answer. Where do we go? Roger? Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, you know, I feel like today we're, we're kind of in, in the same boat. I feel like today sometimes we make extra effort. Um, like we're trying to get together a lot of times. And the reasons we get together are not spiritual reasons, but more physical reasons. What I mean by that, for example, have you noticed like a, ch- a church goes, you know, all the young people in the church, hey, let's go play some football. And like 20, 25 people get together and they play football. And it's study the Bible. Five people get together, you know? Because it's not as fun to do, you know, the second one. And of course, we speak it to a crowd when we're here studying for three days. So we're kind of like, we know we love the Bible and stuff like that. But I feel, I feel that there's a lot of people in church that are looking for fun and for activity. And sometimes we give in to that. And we're like, you know what, we need to get together and play basketball. You know, maybe we have five million people there, you know, trying to talk a little bit here and there. But I think our focus needs to be more on the spiritual things and less on these physical things, which ultimately won't profit much of year. Well, that's exactly right. And sometimes it's like, well, but, but we know that they're going to be uh, dismotivated and, and maybe just, you know, fall away if we don't keep a steady diet of fun, you know, because that's what they really want. And I, I think that's really a challenge for us. I, I think there's, it's too easy for us to adapt our message to a market analysis. That's what you do in sales. If you're going to sell something, you need to survey the market. You find out what the customer wants. You know, you find out what he wants. You try to provide what he wants. You find out how he wants to be sold. You know, how he wants to be marketed to. And you use that technique. And you market to him in a way that's adapted to his wants and needs and tastes. We do the same thing with, with Christianity. If we're not careful, certainly what the world, the Christian quote-unquote world does. They, they, they look at the customer, the prospective buyer, and they figure out, right, here's what he's looking for. You know, what, what the man today wants is blah, 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 blah. He wants good this, he wants that, he wants the other. Okay, so this is the package we're going to put together. Now, how does he want us to sell it to him? You know, what kind of a technique, what kind of a strategy can we have to really draw him to this package we put together that really is what he wants? Wow. I mean, I think we're closer to that sometimes than what we realize. That's just not right. I mean, what do we do? We teach God's Word. What will that do? It will draw God's people. What else are we trying to do? Great. Um, do you think there is a place for us uh, to spend time with non-Christians or people that need encouragement? 
doing things that are not uh, specifically spiritually um, focused to be an encouragement to them? And if so, how, how do we balance that? Just spending time doing other things to encourage them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I have a definitive answer to that. I mean, first of all, I don't believe it's bad to do something with somebody that's not spiritual. I mean, God gives us many things to enjoy in this life, and if we're thankful to God and we're obedient to him in what we do, if we want to go out and play football, it's not a bad thing to play football. You know, it, but if our thinking is, wow, you know, this guy is really weak, you know, if we can keep enough stuff that's fun surrounding him, maybe we can keep him interested. We're probably thinking of that the wrong way. You know, if we want to enjoy going and playing football, great. But if, if our evangelism strategy and our keeping him strategy is, we'll get enough football, he'll stick with us. That's not, that's not the right mentality. Well, um, I mean, do you think it's uh, a faulty idea to spend time with someone that doing things that aren't spiritual to develop a relationship with that person so that you can encourage them more? Or is that a faulty idea as well? Well, I think there are faulty ideas at least surrounding that. I think it's a faulty idea to think I can't really evangelize him unless I make him a friend. We, we've got that friendship evangelism idea that, you know, to, in modern society, the way to evangelize is get him to be a good friend, then you can reach him. Then you can gain credibility, and he'll come to you with his religious questions, and you'll have authority to be able to reach him. Well, is that what you see in the New Testament? Do you see Jesus doing that? Now, Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. I mean, it wasn't like Jesus, you know, I mean, he'd go where they were, he'd do stuff with him, but, but you don't see him only evangelizing the people that he cultivated the friendship of. Do you see Paul going into a new city, spending a year developing friendships that he then teaches? He goes to people he didn't even know, and he just preaches the message. So I, I think that's a problem. I'll, I'll limit it to that at the moment, but Tim? 